Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is People Every Day. Coming up, exes J-Lo and Ben Affleck spend time together in Montana. Plus, Seth Rogen distances himself from longtime friend James Franco, accused of sexual misconduct. And author Britt Bennett breaks down her hit novel, The Vanishing Half. The way that people have received this book around the world has just overwhelmed me at every step of the way. It's May 10th. Hi there. Welcome back to People Every Day. I'm your host, Janine Rubenstein, and a happy Monday to you all. I hope all the moms and moms-to-be had a great Mother's Day weekend. I know I did. It was a great weekend for music, too, I gotta say. There was the big Vax Live concert, and just seeing folks like J-Lo on stage doing her thing in front of a big live audience was amazing and encouraging. Uh, but also on the virtual side of things, there was the big versus battle between Escape and SWV. Okay, which was everything, I must say. 400,000 people tuned into that. So there's just no beating 90s R&B for me. I was in the zone. But enough about me. Later in the episode, I talked to author Britt Bennett, the woman behind the hit novel, The Vanishing Half. And we get into the personal family story that inspired the bestseller and also how she's bringing the book to the screen with the help of Issa Rae. So stick around for all of that. Now, though, top stories. And joining me is People.com Movies News Editor, Nigel Smith, to get into what's bubbling up out there. Hi, Nigel. Hey, Janine. Okay, so so let's talk about what's out there. Um, And it's all about kind of Seth Rogen. This is what's bubbling up for me that I'm seeing as one of the top stories. He has his new memoir yearbook that's coming out and he is getting pretty candid about not only his life and career, but his friendships. And this is what people are picking up on. Um, He's kind of distancing himself from James Franco for the first time, very, you know, clearly and, and, and out spoken in this article. So tell me a little bit about what we're hearing from him today. Yeah, this is a really big deal because Seth hasn't addressed the allegation against Franco since 2018, I think, when he last spoke to Vulture. And at the time, he was kind of making light of it and saying that he would collaborate with James Franco again. This is someone that Seth has known since they were teenagers on the show Freaks and Geeks. And they've made so many movies over the years, uh, films from like the Interview, Pineapple Express. I mean, films that people really, really love. And for him to finally comment on this way and say that he's really distancing himself from Franco in light of the number of allegations against him, sexual misconduct allegations and so forth, it really, really means a lot. So let's first get into the most recent accusation against James Franco, which came from uh, Charlene Yee, who took to Instagram and basically talked about him as a predator and also as Seth Rogen as an enabler. So how does that play into Seth's article and what he has to say today? 
I think in a big way, because, you know, we actually reached out to James Franco and to Seth um, at the time that her statement made its way onto Instagram, because a lot of outlets began to obviously cover what she had to say. They all worked together on the film The Disaster Artist, and she just came out a number of years later um, calling uh, James Franco, as you said, a predator, and Seth Rogen his enabler. And at the time, they didn't comment. So I think Rogen was waiting for a time with a major publication where he could sit down and really get into it and address these allegations again against Franco. So I think that she really actually kind of um, brought this conversation around Franco back into the mainstream, into the forefront, because he hasn't really been um, mentioned in these in, the, in this way uh, for a number of months, maybe a year, because, you know, as you know, we've, we've been seeing him still appear in movies and TV over the years, most recently on HBO's critically acclaimed show, The Deuce. So this is an actor who continues to work in Hollywood. And I think it really took her speaking up uh, for these allegations to come back to the forefront. Yeah. And, and you bring it up, but we should lay out, you know, what is the drama surrounding James Franco? And, and in 2014, he, um, allegedly propositioned a 17 year old girl. Uh, he was 35 at the time. And, and then in, uh, 2018, the LA Times published accounts from five women who accused Franco of sexually inappropriate behavior on set. Um, you know, the busy Phillips, um, recall the time that Franco like violently shoved her to the ground. On set. And then in 2019, two students of Franco's acting school that he had filed a lawsuit against him and his partners accusing him of sexually exploitative auditions. Um, so there's just been a lot in that vein and, and, you know, essentially getting him caught up in this Me Too movement where people are, are coming out and saying all of these things that you were doing, they weren't OK. And uh, now you have someone that is, you know, I, I guess it would be Me Too adjacent. Like, what do you do as a friend? Um, what do you say? And and now he is speaking out. So what did he say about his role, if any, in um, not speaking out like he has now in this interview. Yeah, no, he did express a lot of regret. He uh, specified two instances in which he kind of defended Franco in a way or made light of the situation uh, surrounding Franco. There was a time that he hosted um, Saturday Night Live and he made jokes of uh, the first time that Franco really made headlines for, you know, as you said, propositioning a 17 year old girl and then also admitting it, you know, uh, on a live show with Kelly Ripa and Michael Strahan at the time. I decided to prank James Franco. I posed as a girl on Instagram. <laughs> told him I was way young. <laughs> he seemed unfazed. And he actually made a joke about it. And he actually had his friend uh, James Franco come on stage to uh, to kind of make light of the whole situation on Saturday Night Live. And looking back, he really, really regrets that. And then he also addressed the interview with Vulture in 2018, where he said freely that he would work with Franco again, kind of making light of the situation. But, you know, some things have come to light in the years since. Uh, what's really revealing is that he did, not only did he distance himself professionally from Franco, but he also talked about the toll that it's had on their relationship as friends, because as I said, 
these guys are people that go back to their teenage years. And he talked about their dynamic and how the relationship has changed as a result of these allegations. So you can tell that it's affected him on a personal level as well. Yeah. And and I'm, I'm seeing here this quote about, you know, when the, the interviewer asked, like, it must have been painful because, you know, they did have a close friendship and, and to be, you know, kind of dealing with all of this as a friend, he said, yeah, but not as painful and difficult as it is for a lot of other people involved. I have no pity for myself in this situation. So uh, it, it does seem like he is is very clear. Um, but I, I want to get into this other story that is it's tangential, I guess. Uh, but the the HFPA, the Golden Globes, um, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association um, is getting caught up. Uh, this is kind of more in the line of what we had seen during award season, right, where they were being taken to task for just having almost zero diversity and uh, and not really doing anything about it. Um, in February, the LA Times published an expose um, detailing a lot of the shortcomings and, and conduct within the HFPA, including that they had no black members. Um, but the fallout is continuing, right? So, so what are we seeing this week? Well, this week, what's really, really interesting is that I bet the HFPA, you know, the, the association behind the Golden Globes, they probably didn't see this coming because what they did was that they released a statement outlining the steps they were going to take to diversify their membership and to take steps towards, you know, everything that was brought up in the LA Times article a year back that really exposed uh, the HFPA for their bad practices. And um, instead, what actually happened was that all of these studios, major uh, digital studios like Amazon and Netflix, they came out so hard against it, just saying this isn't enough. The steps that you have outlined in this memo show that you are not taking the strides that need to be taken. And uh, it's just something that I bet the HFPA didn't see coming. And now they're kind of walking it back and just saying they want to open up a conversation with these studios because obviously this is their bread and butter. If they don't have studios like Netflix and Amazon bringing their films and their stars to the show, then they don't have a show. Oh my goodness, that's true. And, and and it's not just the studios, though. Like you're hearing from stars who have weighed in. So you have Mark Ruffalo, who said in a statement that he cannot feel proud or happy about being a recipient of this Golden Globe Award. Um, just really laying it out. But then also Scarlett Johansson over the weekend. Tell me a little bit about what she had to say in her just past experiences with the Golden Globes. Yeah, her statement was really fascinating because this isn't a star who often speaks out about such issues in such uh, detail. And this is an actress who has a number of nominations which it, with, with the HFPA. They obviously love her. They last nominated her for the film Marriage Story. But she opened up about how the steps they're taking are not enough and that it's time to distance ourselves as a collective Hollywood from the HFPA and all they represent. But what she really got into was um, detailing some experiences that she had. She said she recalled some experiences of having to take part in these press conferences that the HFPA hosts with its members to try to drum up uh, anticipation and excitement uh, for the award show in which they interview actresses and actors like Scarlett Johansson and try to get them, you know, um, talking to the members and to, to buzz up their films. And she recalled some instances where she says that she was subjected to um, what she labeled sexual harassment in terms of the tone of the questions that, will that were leveled at her and how uncomfortable um, they made her feel. 
wow, like people are not taking anything sitting down anymore. And that's awesome. And, and, and it kind of just brings up, uh, I know this is going back to the beginning of the Me Too movement, but Harvey Weinstein, right? He was known as someone who really used um, the award show circuit and, and the Golden Globes specifically um, to kind of fuel his films and, and, and get the word out. So I'm wondering, is there any indication that just some of that, that culture bled over into the, into the HFPA itself? Oh, absolutely. And I forgot to mention that she actually cited the name Harvey Weinstein in her statement uh, denouncing the HFPA and, and speaking to exactly what you spoke to about the kind of culture that he fostered within Hollywood and how that bled into the tone and the temperament that they took with uh, celebrities in these, these press conferences that took place. And one thing I just want to know that's super, super important is that celebrities like Scarlett Johansson, you know, they obviously love awards and they love getting dressed up and going to these award show and connecting yeah. with the fans in these big shows. But the Golden Globes really don't actually have any power over the ultimate award show, which is the Oscars, because none of its yeah. members are actually voters for the Academy. The HFPA is just comprised of journalists, international journalists. And so there's no overlap, actually, in terms of what wins at the Golden Globes winning at the Oscars. Uh, well, thank you so much, Nigel, for getting into all of this and, and breaking down Hollywood for me. Of course. Always happy to talk about it. Now for a story that is really heating up. Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez. Yes, the pair we once called Benifer. They are spending time together again, and there's new details. People.com managing editor Charlotte Triggs is here to share some exclusive news. Take it away, Charlotte. It looks like Benifer might be back. Jennifer Lopez and Ben Affleck went on vacation together in Montana. They spent several days together, and a source says they have a very strong connection, and Jennifer's having a lot of fun. And of course, people remember that they had probably one of the most front page love affairs of all time back in 2002, 2003, 2004, where they were engaged and then they were set to get married. They called off their, their wedding at the last minute. The you know venue was there. Now they've both in the last several years been in long-term relationships. I mean, he was dating Anna de Armas for quite a long time and people were were, you know, kind of waiting to see if they might get engaged, if they might get married. And she, of course, was with Alex Rodriguez. They were, in fact, engaged and had wedding plans on the books that were, of course, disrupted by the pandemic. And it seems like what might have been just, you know, kind of a friendly get together with an ex has turned into maybe something a little bit more. Well, then. Thanks, Charlotte. This might be the rebound heard around the world. <laughs> Next up, best-selling author Britt Bennett on her stories finding success in print and on screen. Stay tuned. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. 
Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. Britt Bennett is that author that everyone is talking about. Her latest book, The Vanishing Half, has garnered so much praise and buzz. And this is coming after her debut novel, Did the Same, The Mothers, which was published in 2016 and became a New York Times bestseller and is in the process of being turned into a feature film. Uh, The last place you saw Bennett was on the cover of Time magazine, though. She was recently included in the Time 100 Next List. So big things pop in for Britt, okay? And she's here to get into all of it. Hi there. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. So so what were some of the thoughts going through your mind between publishing your, your first book, The Mothers, and then publishing your second book? Yeah, I think it was a really completely different experience. Um, you know, The Mothers, I think with the first book, you're just so excited to have a book. Um, and you have no conception of what could go well for you or what could go really badly for you. Mm. So you're just truly like just happy to be there for the ride. And I had an amazing experience publishing my first book. Um, but the vanishing half really has been unlike anything I could have ever imagined or fantasized about it truly, um, the way that people have received this book around the world has just, uh, overwhelmed me at every step of the way. Um, so I think to experience publishing this book in this way during this pandemic of all times has been a truly surreal experience. Nice. So let's just give people a little bit of the um, synopsis because, well, I hate to do that because you're the author and you wrote all of those wonderful, <laughs> beautiful words. <laughs> but if, if you could boil it down for someone who hasn't picked it up yet. Sure. So The Vanishing Half is a story about uh, identical twin sisters who are inseparable as children. But then as adults decide to live their lives on opposite sides of the color line, one white and one black. Got it. Got it. So where did the the impetus, the inspiration for you for this particular book come from? Yeah, the inspiration came from my mother, who is originally from Louisiana and was telling me about a town she remembered hearing about where everyone was light skinned there and obsessed with skin color. Mm. And that immediately to me struck me as, oh, this is the setting for a novel. And I decided to think about, you know, twin sisters who come from that town and then decide to live their lives in two very different directions. And just in talking to your your mom, was she involved in anything? Like, did you send her like the first manuscripts and say like, mom, what about this? No, (laughs) I don't. I don't show my family until it's already like almost finished until you have like the advanced copy of the book. Um, (laughs) I feel way too self-conscious, I think, to to tell them. So I don't even know that she knew I was writing about this, but it was a story she told me like years ago when I was still in grad school in an hour. And I just remember writing it on my notes app of my phone and then just kind of continuing with whatever I was doing. So I didn't tell her that this is what I was writing about or that she had inspired it until I actually gave her the book before it was ready to come out. And what's your writing process like? It sounds like you you kind of, you know, block out outside forces, but, but <laughs> what do you do to get in the zone? I try to, yeah, I try to ideally working early in the morning, no Twitter, no email, no texting, um, ideally. Um, so I try to, I try <laughs> to protect that, that time and that creative space. 
Um, but a lot of it, I think for me is just, I, I know that I'm the type of person who has to sit down every day and write a bit because it's, it's harder to get into it when I haven't done it in a while than if I just write a little bit every day. So I'm certainly that person who has to kind of get into the muscle memory of just sitting at the desk every day and trying to write something, even if the words don't, don't necessarily come that day. That is good. I, I, I used to be like that, but I'm not anymore. <laughs> um, and, and just the, the, the synopsis of this book makes me think a little bit about something that our book's editor, Kim Hubbard, had talked to me about a couple of weeks back about uh, Nella Larson's uh, book, Passing, that she rediscovered very recently. Uh, but I want to know, like, who are some of the novelists that you pull upon that you looked up to and, and loved reading, you know, before your career started? I think Mel Larson's Passing was certainly a book that I uh, drew upon in thinking about this book. I think that's a great uh, example. Um, I think other writers that I grew up loving, I loved James Baldwin, Toni Morrison. Um, those were writers I just found on my parents' bookshelf and kind of stole um, and read on my own. Um, and then I think when I got into college, I began to read more contemporary authors like Jasmine Ward, Dorothy Allison, Tiari Jones, um, Angela Flournoy. These are all writers whose work mm. I really love. And I'm looking forward to reading uh, whatever books they continue to produce moving forward. Nice. And uh, there will be a screen moment for your works as well. So tell me a little bit about like the mothers and, and what's happening with that coming to TV or the big screen. Yeah, well, the mothers, we sold the rights to Kerry Washington um, for that adaptation. And I have, I have no idea where that project is at this point. And I, I never understand how anything gets developed. So it's it's truly sort of um, <laughs> up to the development gods at this point. Um, and then we sold the rights to the Vanishing Half to HBO and, and we're working on a limited series for that. So it's been really cool to kind of peek behind the curtain a little bit and see how this completely different world of Hollywood works, which is very, very different than the world of books. Yeah. Um, but it's been, it's cool to peek behind the curtain and see it, catch a glimpse of it. And obviously it will be amazing if these projects um, are able to make it onto the screen someday and, and people can, you know, bring in new people to, to the world of these books. Yes, for sure. And I'm, I'm, I'm pairing this up because another Stanford grad that I think is around your time period, Issa Rae, uh, I just feel like there, there could be some synergy somewhere with some of your works and her. I don't know how this works, but I think it would be awesome. It's <laughs> funny that you actually bring her up. She's one of the producers for the HBO series. So wow. we are finally, yeah, we're having, we never, she graduated, I think maybe a year before I got there. So we barely missed each other at Stanford, but uh, but I'm really excited to be working with her, of course, for the TV show. Well, look at that. There you go. That is <laughs> awesome. Yes. And, and I also wanted to ask you just a little bit about what the reaction was when you were like, mom, dad, family, I'm going to be an author. And <laughs> because it's, it, it's, it's an amazing profession, but one that seems like one of the hardest uh, to be successful in. So how did you navigate that discussion? And did you always have the support? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you can imagine as a person who went to Berkeley, um, you know, I, I think from my parents, they really wanted me if you're going to Stanford. We're expecting you to go to law school, to be a doctor, to, you know, do this type of a career. So they were not very excited about it at first. They didn't want me to be a starving artist. They didn't want me to struggle, yeah. <laughs> um, which I think most parents kind of feel that way, I imagine. But really, like, this is something that 
um, that I wanted to continue doing. And, and really it was once I began to publish nonfiction when I was in grad school and a little bit beyond that. And they saw that people were reading these things that I wrote. And, and I think that was the moment they were kind of like, okay, maybe this might work out for you. you know? <laughs> so they've since very much come on board and they've been really excited about my journey as a writer, but you know, they were reluctant, I think at first, as I imagine most parents are. They have their, they have their thoughts about what's supposed to happen, man. And they do. <laughs> but that is so great. And I'm just so excited for your success. Uh, I have to ask before you go, what are you reading right now? Oh, that's a good question. So I'm reading uh, The Final Revival of Opal and Nev uh, by Donnie Walton, which just came out. Mm. So, uh, it's an oral history of a sort of Afro-punk kind of rock duo from the 60s. It's a novel, uh, but it's really fun the way that it uh, draws in real celebrities. And like there was just a Liza Minnelli cameo in the section I was reading. Um, so it draws <laughs> in these sort of real celebrities to build the world of this rock group in a way that feels very real as you're reading it. Um, and also Dove tells and, 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 you know, these questions about music, race, gender, all of these questions. So it's been a really fun book that I've been um, enjoying a lot. I got to look it up, Britt. Thank you so much for being in on the show. For sure. Thanks for having me. That was author Britt Bennett. For more on her, head over to people.com. And now, something to make you smile. Of course, Mother's Day was yesterday, and an adorable little guy made his mom very happy when he mouthed three incredibly endearing words. Just listen. That is Jenna Bush Hager's one-year-old son, Henry, and the proud mom posted the car seat video to Instagram saying, best Mother's Day gift, a first sentence from my latest love. Mind you, I am jealous because my baby daughter, Raimi, just started saying, dada, dada. <laughs> Whatever, Doug, I'm still her favorite. <laughs> I will see you guys tomorrow.